Good morning. Welcome, everybody. So this is my last but one talk at Sutton Vineyard. And what I want to talk about this morning is one of, if not the most uncomfortable subjects that there is, not just for the person doing the talk, but for everybody listening as well. Now, there's a number of contenders, of course, for most uncomfortable sermon topic. Uh, for example, did people in the Bible have body odor? Not Jesus, of course. But what about Abraham and Moses and the Apostle Paul? That is a pretty uncomfortable question, especially when you know that deodorant wasn't invented until 1888. And it's even more uncomfortable that deodorant for men didn't go on sale until 1935. It was 50 years before men got the message. I can see some of you thinking that's actually quite quick. <laughs> Sex would be another uncomfortable subject, but although it might be awkward to talk about, at least it's popular. <laughs> so for me, top of the list of most uncomfortable sermon topics, the subject that I least like to talk about has to be money and giving. And there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, the first is when pastors talk about money and giving, it's dead easy to be thinking, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They've got a vested interest in getting people to give. I'm also very aware that many here today are already very generous and sacrificial givers, and it's thanks to you that we are able to do the things that we do. For many of you, I know that it's costing you you're taking cheaper holidays or fewer holidays or driving around in a cheaper car than you could and going out less than you could because you believe in what we're doing and you want to be part of it despite that personal cost. So to you, we want to say a really massive thank you. But there's also people listening who are struggling to put food on the table or decide which bill to pay who are probably already feeling a little bit sick inside about what I might say this morning and whether I'm going to make them feel shamed. God forbid that anyone should ever do that. Others may be quite new to the church and may be holding off giving until they're sure that these people, that, that this church here is worth investing in, and I totally get that. And there will be some who don't give because they just don't for whatever reason. And then last but not least, we always have guests and visitors on a Sunday and I'm very aware that this is probably the world's worst subject for your first visit. On the plus side though, if you can survive today and give us another chance next week, then it can only uh, get better from now on. Okay, so lots of different audiences. So I would love it if the Holy Spirit would just speak to everybody directly about money and giving and say what he wants to say to each person here in all of our different circumstances, because that would get me off the hook. But I know in my heart that that's silly, because on that basis, we'd never preach a sermon about anything, would we? We'd just leave everything to the Holy Spirit. So even though it's uncomfortable for me and for you, our job as church pastors is not to be comfortable, and it's not even to be popular. 
much as we all want to be. Our job is to be faithful in sharing what we sincerely believe being right with God in our money and giving looks like. So I want to try to answer three questions this morning. The first is, why as Christians should we give at all? The second is, why as Christians should we give to the church? And the third is, if we believe that God wants us to give, then what should we give? And straight away, there's a bit of a problem in how I'm posing these questions, because in today's postmodern world, no one likes being told what to do. You may have your truth about money and giving, Steve, but that isn't necessarily my truth. We are suspicious of truth claims. And that is a natural reaction against institutions and people who have used their truth claims to manipulate people and control people and get what they want from people. And in the Christian world, I'm afraid, using the Bible says to do that. So I get that and I get why people feel like that. And it's absolutely right for us to have our critical faculties tuned in when we're listening to anyone's truth claims, mine included. But equally, because of the central place that we want God to have in our lives, we want his truth to be our truth, don't we? We want his truth to be Lord of our lives, not our own. So whatever the subject is, we need to try to be really sensitive to his truth, to really try to hear it and be open to it and resist the natural tendency to default to our truth, especially when we know in our heart of hearts that more often than not, ours tends to be a more comfortable truth. So when someone like me does a talk on something that's uncomfortable, then whether people receive what we say and trust what we say and want to act on what we say will depend, I think, on two things. The first is whether we trust the integrity and the credentials of the person saying it. And the second is, even more importantly, whether we believe that what they are saying is an authentic reflection of how God thinks and feels about it. So those are the two questions to be asking ourselves this morning as we listen. So let's start with the big picture, as it were. Biblical scholars will tell us that the Bible has about 500 verses about prayer, fewer than 500 about faith, but more than 2,000 about money and possessions. Jesus talked more about money and possessions than about heaven and hell. Between, somewhere between a third and a half of his parables were about money and possessions. In fact, the only subject that he talked more about was the kingdom. So clearly, money and possessions and our attitude to money and possessions and what we do with our money and possessions is important. If we want to be right with God, we need to be right with him in every area of our life, money and possessions included. So the question is, what does that look like? And it starts with worship. Our word worship comes from an unpronounceable Middle English word, which means the acknowledgement of worth. And worth means the level at which something or someone deserves to be valued. 
Worship is all about worth. It's literally worth-ship. It's what God and his kingdom is worth to me. Now, everyone is a worshiper, Christian or not. The only question is who or what it is that they're worshipping. Dave Miller from Trent Vineyard puts it really well. He says, we worship what we value the most. Whatever it is that has our heart's affection, our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition. He says our bank statements and our diaries are theological documents. More than anything else, they're telling us what we love. Isn't that interesting? Worship is so much more than just singing songs. John Wimber said, if you want to know what you worship, look at what you do with your time, what you do with your energy, and what you do with your money. See, what we do with our money is not a statement about money. It's a statement about the level at which I think God deserves to be valued compared to other things. It's a statement about where Jesus ranks in my list of priorities in life compared to the other things that I spend my money on. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he's saying that our money goes into the things that we love. If you've ever wondered what worshipping idols is all about and, and what the Bible means when it talks about idolatry, it is not having statues of Buddha on the mantelpiece, though I don't recommend them. It's whenever we're letting something else fill a space that Jesus should have in our life, giving affection and time and resources that should be going to him to other things instead. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. And he says the same thing, the exact same thing in Ephesians 5. And isn't it interesting that whether we're greedy or generous is linked with who or what we're worshipping in life. Now in first century Israel at the time of Jesus, worship and sacrifice that happened in the temple were intimately linked. Sacrifice was worship, and worship was sacrifice. And unsurprisingly, the New Testament continues those themes. In Romans 12, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And some translations say, this is your spiritual worship. Sacrifices were understood to be a gift to God. So offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is a way of saying that although Jesus died for us as a sacrifice, he doesn't want us to die for him as a sacrifice. He wants us to live for him as a sacrifice to live sacrificially and to gift ourselves sacrificially. Offering our bodies means gifting to him in every area of life, our time, our affections, our energy, our money, our possessions. So giving is part of worship. And it's also part of discipleship. 
The very final thing that Jesus told us to do in the closing words of Matthew's gospel was to go and make disciples, not believers or followers. And the basic difference between a disciple and a believer or follower is whether we do what Jesus says. So in the parable of the wise and foolish builder in Luke 6, very unusually for a parable, Jesus starts by telling everyone the meaning of the parable, which is, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? Because the foolish builder in the parable is the one who hears Jesus' words, but doesn't put them into practice. So believers believe what Jesus says, followers like what Jesus says, but disciples do what Jesus says. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. Believers and followers are good at freely receiving, but not so good at freely giving, whereas disciples love to do both. Believers and followers feel that when they do give, they are giving what's theirs. Disciples believe that what they're giving is God's, because they give him the credit for everything that they have. They gratefully receive and gratefully give. Disciples know that it doesn't make any sense at all to invite Jesus into my life, but not into my bank account. So that's my answer to the first question. Why as Christians should we give at all? The next question is, why should we give to the church? And this is the one with the potential for the most self-serving answer. Steve would say that, wouldn't he? So you will have to take a view on that. Now some people will say, I'll decide for myself what I give to, thanks very much, rather than giving to or through the church. But fulfilling what Jesus has called his church to do requires organization of people and resources. There's an old chorus you may have heard from years ago this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, that's a bit like us giving as an individual. We're shining a little light here and there. But only together, all of us together, can we be that light of the world that Jesus said in Matthew 5, he wants us to be like, like a city set on a hill that everyone can see from miles around. Individual giving supports Christian causes, but if everyone did that, there would be no church. Sutton Vineyard gets no central funding at all. Every vineyard is financially self-sustaining. So without your generous giving, there would be no Sutton Vineyard. No Sunday services, no pastoral care, no people finding Jesus, no lives being changed, no lighthouse, no compassion ministries at the Dolphin that we were hearing about earlier. But you know, to my mind, the biggest single reason for prioritizing our giving to the church is because it's an act of surrender to the Lordship of Jesus over our money. Because while I am the one making all the decisions as to where my money goes, I'm the one who's in control. It's saying that it's my money and I'll do what I want with it. I'm retaining the right to be steering the ship to give a bit here and a bit there 
where I personally choose. Now, one of the things about having money is the power that goes with it, especially the power of choice in your life. So handing over my financial giving to the church dethrones me as the decision maker. And you know, there are very few areas in life where we can visibly demonstrate to Jesus and prove to ourselves that we really are disciples and he really is Lord. And thanks to the banking system, a monthly standing order is a really easy way for us to be obedient to him in the area of money. And that system helps us not to be tempted to spend it on something else. It means that it's the first thing that we give to each month. And that's important, as we'll see in a moment. The reason that Jesus said no one can serve two masters, God and money, is because money is one of the front lines where there is a contest or a battle going on for our heart's affection, our mind's attention, and our soul's ambition. Very few of us ever fall in love with the devil, at least not intentionally, but lots of us fall in love with money. So it's really good to have a structure in place, a giving structure in place to show Jesus and show ourselves that that is not the case. Now you may say, but what if I don't like some of the things that the church spends money on or doesn't spend money on? or in my opinion, doesn't spend enough on. Well, actually, that is kind of the point. Because giving to the church is all about laying down our rights, our right to be in control, and my opinion on those things, winning. So when we give anyway, because we know we're actually giving to Jesus, because it's actually his church and not my church, because it's actually his money, not my money, then we know we're beginning to pick something up about lordship. Now, of course, we won't want to entrust our giving to the church if we don't trust the people leading the church and making those decisions. But I think if that is the case, then there's probably something more fundamental going on. Because if I can't trust them enough to give, then I'm probably in the wrong church. Okay, so if you are with me so far on why we should give at all and why we should give to the church, let's finally take a quick look at what should we give. So when the Bible talks about giving, it's usually talking about one of two things. One is tithes and the other is offerings. So a tithe is the first 10% of our income, the first fruits of everything that God gives us. A tithe comes before we spend our money on anything else. Whereas an offering, sometimes called a free will offering, is exactly that. Something that we freely choose to give to above and beyond a tithe. So offerings will reflect both our means and our desire to be generous. But the amount is between us and God. So yes, we should pray about what we give and where as an offering. But we really don't need to pray about where and what we give as a tithe. As that Nike advert says, just do it. And that's because in scripture, 
The first 10% is the Lord's, not ours. Okay, so whenever a church talks about tithing, there will be some who say, I don't believe in tithing. That came from the law of Moses. It's legalism. And Jesus set me free from the law. But you know, it's funny how people who think like that hardly ever do the obvious thing. Which is, if we think that giving 10% as a tithe is legalistic, why not give 11% instead? Problem solved. Or, let's call it a monthly free will offering instead. Let's not let technicalities get in the way of generosity. So let me explain where tithing comes from. And then we can decide for ourselves whether it's legalism or not. So the first mention of giving to the Lord from the first fruits of our labor is Genesis chapter 4. And let's just remind ourselves how early on in the biblical story that is. So Genesis 1 to 3 is the creation story. Genesis 4 starts with Eve giving birth to a son called Cain and then another son called Abel. And all of that is in the first two verses of that chapter. And then immediately the story leapfrogs to Cain and Abel, who are now grown-ups presenting offerings to the Lord. Cain gives the first crops from his harvest and Abel gives the first lambs from his flock. This is the very first thing that we read about in the Bible after the creation, after those two verses. The first mention of tithing as 10% comes soon after that in the story of Abraham, also in Genesis, when he gives a tithe to someone called Melchizedek, who is the priest and king of Salem, the original name for Jerusalem. And Melchizedek is very interesting because in the New Testament, he is presented to us as a type of Jesus, as someone corresponding to Jesus, who is, of course, our priest and king. Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 is all about Abraham and Melchizedek and tithing. So do have a look at it later. So it's not until a 100 chapters after Abraham that we find the first mention of tithing in the law. So we don't get tithing from the law. We get it from thousands of years before the law, right at the very beginning of the biblical story. So let me just quickly run through a few typical examples of what the Old Testament has to say about it. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In other words, tithing is an ownership recognition thing, that it's his, not mine. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will again be holy to the Lord. And holy means set apart. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. So tithes were for three things. One was for the upkeep of the temple, the place where God dwelled and where worship happened. 
And of course, in New Testament terms, the place where God dwells is the church, the people of God, which is pictured for us there as a temple. Two was for the Levites, the priests, so they could devote themselves to the ministry. And in our terms, that would be the pastors and the staff team. And three was for the poor, the storehouse, as they called it. That was a function of the temple to help the needy and the disadvantaged in the community. And those are basically the three things that our tithes go on as well. Now, some Christians believe in tithing, but they say, I don't want to give it all to the church. I'll give some to my favorite charities and Christian organizations instead. I'll spread it around. But that really is not a biblical understanding. Offerings, yes. Tithes, no. And the reason for that is back to ownership. My tithe is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms because it's his tithe. In Leviticus 27, the verse we looked at a moment ago, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. So when we come to the New Testament period, tithes and offerings were part of everyday life. Although Jesus talked a lot about money and possessions and being generous and sacrificial, there's only one passage where he talks directly about tithing. That's in Matthew 23, where he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, mercy, justice, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So faithfulness in tithing meant giving a tenth of everything that you grew and produced. So everyone was very focused on making sure they did that, even herbs from the garden. So they weren't being stingy about anything. They were being passionate about it. Jesus isn't saying woe to you because you're tithing so passionately. He says you should be doing that. Carry on doing that. He's saying woe to you because you're not doing justice and mercy and faithfulness in how you treat people as well. That's what they were being hypocritical about. He's saying you need to do both. And then one final thing that's worth having a quick look at is what did they do in the early church, in the second generation after Jesus? So the most important Christian writing from that period is a document called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And chapter 13 is all about giving, where it says this, take the first products of vintage and harvest of cattle and sheep and give them as first fruits. If you bake bread, take the first loaf and give it according to the commandment. If you open a new jar of wine or oil, take the first fruit and give it. So too, if you acquire money or clothing or any other possessions, take a tithe of them in whatever way you think best and give according to the commandment. Sounds very similar to the Old Testament verses, doesn't it? Now apparently there were two main lines of thinking in the early church fathers. One was that Christians should continue to tithe. The other was that tithing wasn't enough, that we should do what Jesus said to that 
rich young ruler and give everything away. So let's have a show of hands, shall we, as to which of those two approaches we prefer. I'm kidding. The serious point is that nowhere in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the early church do we come across the idea of giving nothing or just giving what we personally feel God is saying or just giving something from what we've got left over after we've spent what we want to on ourselves. And nowhere do we ever see any of that justified on the grounds that Jesus has set us free from the law. Let me finish with two final quick thoughts which I think are significant and helpful. The first is that giving isn't just about doing what God tells us to do, although you think that really should be enough. It's also a vehicle for us to receive a blessing. In Luke 6, Jesus says this, and it's a a grain analogy. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. So Jesus is saying that there is a direct correspondence between the size of the measure that we use in our giving to him, generous or stingy, and the size of the measure that God will use in his giving to us. The Apostle Paul said the same. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He's saying that there is a principle here in relation to our giving which mirrors something that farmers already know, which is the more seeds you scatter, the more seeds you give away, and the more often you do it, the bigger the harvest that you will get. And somehow, that's the way that it works with God in our giving and receiving. Jesus said it, Paul confirmed it, do we trust it? And my second thought is also from Paul in a context where he's talking about free will offerings. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And the Greek word that's rather blandly translated cheerful here is hilaros, from which we get our word hilarious. And before it meant funny ha-ha, it used to mean really happy, really joyful, ready and willing, quick to do it, already won over to the idea. God loves that kind of giver and that kind of giving. Worship team, maybe I could invite you to come back. Thank you. So that's the end of the most uncomfortable sermon subject in the world. Well, maybe not in the world completely, but that might be a slight exaggeration, but certainly the most uncomfortable for me. So thank you for listening. I hope that that's been helpful.